Hey, everybody. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to say, if you are a fan of the show and get something out of it, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Even something as little as a dollar a month really goes a long way. So, thank you. Enjoy the show. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know, reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello, and welcome to the Sam Reed's Near Death Experiences podcast. Hope you're doing well wherever you are around the world, and thank you very much for listening today. So this will be the fourth and final installment in the series of episodes that we've been doing on Melanie's NDE. If you are just tuning in for the first time, I highly recommend you go back and listen to some of those previous episodes that we've done, because I think it will hopefully provide a lot of context and really allow this final episode to hit home. We've discussed in the first episode the process of amplifying and investigating symbolic material, how we can maybe draw certain conclusions about the appearance of a particular image and what it might mean psychologically. In the second episode, we went into a fairly deep dive into the symbolism of the color purple because that is the color that her essence or soul appeared as. And then part three, we looked at the symbolism of the crystal and frost because that was the form that her soul took. So if you haven't heard those, please check them out. As we are going along through this fourth and final episode, I will reference and read the relevant parts of Melanie's experience because it's, let's, let's face it, it's probably been a little while. We might not remember what exactly happened. If you do need a refresher, I will post the link to her experience in the description of this episode. It's not very long. If you, you know, click on it, you can scroll through it and just kind of catch up with what happened in her experience. So, in this last episode, we're going to look at some of the other images, forms that appeared during her NDE, try to make sense of them, and then also what happened after she came back from her experience. This whole business of her seeing windows floating in her kitchen, which is very interesting, and to be honest, at first I, I didn't know what to make of it, but... I think I found something which will help us hopefully be able to shed some light on it. Okay, so before we get too far into this final episode, I wanted to take a quick moment to address something from the previous episode. And that is we were talking about crystals and crystal healing and chakras and chi and that sort of thing. And all I, I kind of wanted to say was that I hope I didn't come off as too harsh towards some of those ideas because it's, it's kind of a subtle thing and I'll try to explain it just briefly. It's like these ideas of chi and chakras I find very valuable when they are embedded within a tradition, with, uh, whether that's a religious practice or a spiritual practice or something that has the depth of roots that reach back thousands of years. That is something that I find extremely valuable. And I think I just tend to raise my eyebrows a bit when these concepts are perhaps used in a way that are not how they were developed used in a sort of scientific way or supplanted into a new age sort of framework. Because I don't think that they have the same resonance as perhaps they do when they are embedded within a culture or within a tradition, within a religion. And, and so that's where I 
I start to <laughs> have have a little reaction towards their misuse, their overuse, and yeah, I'd say misuse in perhaps a scientific way, uh, mixing up of of science and what's within us. I think can be pretty damaging. I mean, they're both great in their own right, and there's a lot of overlap. Like uh, one thing that I was learning about was that. There are certain Tibetan monks that have uh, meditation practices and breathing practices where they can actually heat up their bodies, which I don't think we thought was possible in Western scientific medicine as to be able to influence or control one's body temperature, one's autonomic nervous system. And so there's kind of some overlap where from the outside we can measure certain, I don't know, indices of uh, <laughs> body metrics of heart rate and temperature and that sort of thing, and somehow it corroborates with this internal side of things from this particular religious context of meditation and and perhaps ideas about chi and spreading energy and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I, that's just kind of what I wanted to say and, and to say that I didn't mean to come across as harsh with these concepts of chakras and chi and that sort of thing when they're properly rooted in their place because these are concept that, concepts that man has developed over thousands of years of looking within and... These are perhaps certain useful tools in order to interact with something that perhaps is perhaps is a little more intangible. And my reaction comes from a lot of the new age gobbledygook that kind of surrounds them and, and kind of rips them up from their context and asserts them as something that perhaps they're not. And I think this has some application to perhaps what we talk about in most of these episodes, NDEs and dreams and that sort of thing, because we need to have a correlation and a, a good working relationship between science and perhaps the spiritual side of things. Like They shouldn't necessarily be at odds as long as both are staying in their proper place. Like when science oversteps its bounds, that looks something like saying, oh, all dreams and near-death experiences are just the creations of neurons firing in your brain and that's it. It's like, well, that doesn't necessarily make that any less mysterious as to why neurons are firing autonomously on their own and stitching together this particularly meaningful experience for someone to go through, whether it's at night or at the moment of death. And then perhaps spirituality, psychology, that's the inner side of things can overstep its bounds when it says that chi is measurable and, and your chakra is definitely right in the middle here and you can find it in the body and that it's a different way of experiencing things from the inside and it need not necessarily appear on an x-ray for it to be real. And so as, as long as we are kind of respecting each boundary on each side, I think it, it, there's no reason why these should necessarily be at odds because our psychological experience does correlate with our bodies and things that are measurable, such as heart rate and levels of hormones and that sort of thing. But there is a lot of us that is unconscious, a lot of functioning in our body that we don't think about. It kind of goes on its own. And perhaps we can relate to that in certain ways. And perhaps that relation takes the form of a of a fairy tale or a folk tale or a certain pattern that 
we have evolved and adapted to over thousands of years. And if you speak to a character in a dream, and that character speaks back to you, who is responding? Could be a neuron in your brain, but why does that neuron have anything to say? <laughs> and what is allowing it to say anything at all? And who knows how deep that goes. And then, of course, finally, you have the stories and accounts of people being clinically dead, brain dead, no, should have no experience whatsoever, and yet they do have experiences that they recount when they come back. And that, you know, I'm not a doctor. I, I can't really get into that. All I can do is look at how the experience appears and see if there's something meaningful in that that perhaps we all could relate to and learn from that would give us some insight into ourselves. And so that is what I've been striving to do with Melanie's experience, going to a greater depth than I have ever gone before, and I hope that is useful. And yeah, I'm looking forward to finishing it up. So just to get started in talking about Melanie's experience, I'm going to reread uh, the bit that we're going to be talking about. The scene moved so quickly. I didn't notice getting there, but it went to outer space, and I rested on a rock that was floating in a place. It has all the other purple frosts and essences of people. It was hugely peaceful. I felt so comfortable and at home there. I didn't mind being there at all. It didn't matter that I left my only daughter behind. From where I was, I could see a gigantic circle of other essences, all in shades of purple, pink, and blue. No one spoke to me, but after a time, I had healed enough and was sent back. Okay, so I'm not going to go into as great a depth as perhaps the past two episodes, but I think there are several elements of her, the content of her experience that are worth discussing. Because in the past two episodes, we really didn't get too much further than the first sentence talking about the thread of purple frost. But as for what actually occurs during her experience, I think there are things that uh, we might be able to learn from. So the first thing, perhaps, and this is something that I have alluded to, I think, in the last episode, is, is the sort of coldness of this experience in comparison to, let's say, some of the other ones that we have talked about previously. And it's not coldness in a bad way, uh, and I don't want it to come across that way, but it, it's a sort of different feeling, or at least in the imagery that is evoked. Like, you know, for perhaps a, one of the other NDEs that we've done, someone goes up a tunnel and arrives in a sunny meadow or a, you know, warm pink clouds that surround them. And, and, and it, you definitely get this sense of, of warmth and there's a great light and, and, you know, that you get that vibe with, with many near-death experiences. But Melanie's is, is somewhat different. It's a little more objective, right? It's a little more natural. It's a little more abstract, a little removed from the usual, uh, I don't know, realm of, of what we're used to, right? It's occurring in outer space. She finds herself on a, uh, floating on a rock. But you also get some of the, I guess, some of the warmth coming from the presence of all these other essences or purple frosts, as she mentions. And so that's where we get a little bit of the perhaps connection to other experiences is this sense of wholeness, of, of being home, of connection with other souls. But it's in a form that we're perhaps less familiar with. It's, it's otherworldly. It's more natural, right? And these natural sort of forms of crystals and rocks. And so it's just a different 
character that perhaps a religious experience can take. And while we, you know, usually point out certain patterns that we see in NDEs and, you know, the loved ones and the tunnel and, you know, the you can almost name them off in a list that doesn't mean that it's the only form that a inner experience can take. And by looking at all the varieties, that's the best way that we can get a sense of what we might be dealing with. And while it will have some broad sort of archetypal patterns of mankind, the particular curation of whatever the content of an experience is or the images, the sort of feeling that it has is going to be mediated by personal experience and personal beliefs and cultural beliefs too. And so I think that's important to keep in mind as we continue trying to explore. So on that note, let's take a look at some of the contents of Melanie's experience. Well, we have the giant rock that is floating in outer space, and then also this circle of souls that seems to be extending and stretching out around Melanie. And I think both of these are highly significant. For the rock, let's let's start with that. I mean, we kind of touched a little bit on that in the last episode. It gets into this sort of gray area of symbolism where there's some overlap between categories. Like in the last episode, we were talking about crystals and uh, precious stones and gemstones as sort of symbolic of the self or the greater personality or the soul or divinity. And there are certainly many religious and spiritual ideas about the image of the rock that it share those same qualities. Like, you know, Christ as the rock or the rock which Moses strikes and water comes out of it, that sort of thing. It's it's often used as a symbol or a metaphor for divinity or something beyond. And so you kind of get this gray area of the Venn diagram, right, where the stone, the philosopher's stone, sort of can bleed over into this image of the rock and vice versa. It's fascinating. And I think it's highly meaningful that that is the setting in which Melanie's healing or the entire purpose of her experience takes place there. And so just to give a quick sort of, I don't know, summary of religious and spiritual ideas about rocks, I found a brief passage from a work by Jung, which I wanted to read to flesh this out a little bit. Okay, so this is coming from his book, Man and His Symbols. Quote, We know that even unhewn stones had a highly symbolic meaning for ancient and primitive societies. Rough natural stones were often believed to be the dwelling places of spirits or gods, and were used in primitive cultures as tombstones, boundary stones, or objects of religious veneration. The stone symbolized something permanent that can never be lost or dissolved, something eternal that some have compared to the mystical experience of God within one's own soul. It symbolizes what is perhaps the simplest and deepest experience, the experience of something eternal, that man can have in those moments when he feels immortal and unalterable. End quote. Okay, so if we try and keep in mind what we discussed in the previous episode, talking about crystals and the ideas that surround them, I think it starts to make sense why there's some ambiguity between the symbolism of the crystal and the symbolism of the rock because they share certain associations, such as being eternal, everlasting, something that does not get destroyed, right? That's why, presumably, we 
make monuments and statues out of people out of stone or, you know, or used to at least. I mean, people use iron and steel and stuff now, but, you know, traditionally what the pyramids of Giza were made 4,000 years ago, something like that, and they're still around in pretty good shape. So this idea of a something represented by stone as lasting forever is is very powerful and that obviously lends itself to uh, attributes that we tend to associate with divinity or the sacred or God, that sort of thing. And so the appearance of a rock in a near-death experience, I think, makes sense in a way. It's that which is eternal, which is everlasting, which does not get broken away or does not get altered, but is steady within us. And you also have that shared meaning with some of the things that we talked about, the crystal or the perhaps the form that Melanie's soul took. And so there's this interesting sort of relation of the small, tiny crystal thread of crystal sitting on this large rock. It's sort of representative of perhaps man and God or, or, or that sort of relationship, the ego and the totality of the psyche or our little consciousness and whatever is beyond it. And so while the crystal seems to be a symbol of totality, of wholeness, of perhaps our true essence, the rock, especially as it appears in Melanie's case, appears to be a similar configuration of the same meaning, of wholeness, foundation, and totality. And But it's experienced at a somewhat larger scale from what it sounds like. And then we can bring in this other uh, content, which was the circle of purple frosts that seemed to be stretching out around Melanie. Just to elucidate this imagery of this vast circle a little bit, I wanted to read two quick lines from the reading I had done towards the end of the last episode from Jung's work, Ion, where he's discussing all the various forms that the image of the self can take or the totality of the psyche. Quote, The most important of these are geometrical structures containing elements of the circle and quaternity, namely circular and spherical forms on the one hand, which can be represented either purely geometrically or as objects, and on the other hand, quadratic figures divided into four or in the form of a cross. And then the other line, quote, From the circle and quaternity motif is derived the symbol of the geometrically formed crystal and the wonder-working stone. End quote. Okay. So I think that last line in particular really expresses how there's a kind of resonance between all the different contents of Melanie's experience, how they all kind of share certain meanings and have, have certain relations. And so the crystal, the stone, the circle, those are all right there in that, that line that I just read that from circular and quaternity motifs, you can derive these images of the crystal and the wonder-working stone. And, and what does that mean? I know that's all a little vague and nebulous. If you remember back to the end of the last episode when I read that full, I guess, passage from Jung, what he's trying to do is he's starting at the most abstract, the most... I don't know, ideal or mental sort of images of geometric shapes. And this is all based on his experience looking at dreams of patients. He's able to trace those into more and more, I guess, higher definition or more specified forms of crystals and then onto cities and onto the house and onto the, you know, the lake and uh, onto the 
eventually getting to a human being. But it's it's sort of a, I don't know if you would want to use some kind of metaphor of scaling in on particularity and zooming out into a sort of abstraction. But I thought it was interesting that you have these different elements, which are all fairly abstract forms of perhaps a symbolic representation of the divine, of the self, what have you. And they're all present in Melanie's experience, with the circle perhaps being one of the most removed, one of the most abstract, one of the most ineffable, I suppose. And that when these three elements, the circle and the rock and the crystal are all aligned, you get this special conjunction of of a moment of healing. And it's done without any speaking, which is somewhat unique for near-death experiences. I'd say most people hear a voice or at least do some form of communication with a being or whatnot. But in this case, it was there was no communication at all. It was just a healing experience. And so I just thought it was fascinating that this vast circle of other souls has some meaningful connection or overlap with the ideas of, of the rock and the crystal. And like there's this very famous description of God that gets attributed to a bunch of famous people like St. Augustine and Voltaire and Empedocles, although I'm not sure who was the first one to say it. But I think it illustrates what we might be dealing with. The description is, God is an infinite circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. So I, I love that quote. I mean, it's, it's just so mysterious and, I don't know, powerful. But again, I, I think that's some of the same meaning that we might see here in Melanie's experience and that perhaps we can also see within our own experiences as well feel like there's always so much more that I could say or dive in deeper, but I think that will suffice for talking about the images in her experience. And now I want to transition into talking about what happened when she came back to her body after her experience. So to do that, I am going to reread the paragraph where Melanie describes coming back to her body and what it was like. When I got back to my body, I felt a depth of awakening. It wasn't like I simply arrived. It was as though I came back from somewhere much deeper within me. I had a new sense of not being afraid of death. I felt very connected with the universe, and that wasn't a feeling I had ever experienced before. I then felt worried that the universe was preparing me for death and had reached out to me. Okay. So one thing that fascinates me about this paragraph is the way that Melanie describes the process of coming back as coming back from a place that's deeper within herself. And I think that points to what we might be dealing with. That while there is some overlap between matter and psyche, let's say, between the outer world and the inner world, that perhaps a lot of these experiences are taking place within us, but that doesn't, that does not mean they're not real. I mean, unless you don't count your own experience as real. And I know we have a cultural bias, at least here in the West, of saying that any inner experience is not real per se, but it, like I've said many times, it is empirical to the individual. It's not verifiable by anybody else, but it does happen to the person. And so I think this just illustrates that 
there is a depth within us that perhaps we interact with and perhaps go into at the moment of death. Just as our bodies return to the earth and decay into their constitutive elements and get reabsorbed into whatever natural cycles take place, perhaps our consciousness or our ego has the same process with the totality of the psyche that we emerged out of, out of unconsciousness. And, and I don't want to sound like that wouldn't, that is not divine or that's not sacred. I think that is the source of all that is sacred and all that people find meaningful. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that phrase by Melanie was very powerful, I think. Or, or what, it, what it alludes to, at least. This isn't, like I said, none of this is proof until we live it. But I, I really like that. And then she started to talk about how she felt a sense of awakening. She felt a sense of connection with the universe, which I think is absolutely appropriate and is something that we see echoed in many other uh, after effects of near-death experiencers, that people feel connected to something beyond themselves. And then she also says that she starts to feel afraid that the universe might be preparing her for death. And I think that's absolutely appropriate. I mean, we tend to read near-death experiences and there's a lot of light and love and hugs and joy and all this sort of stuff, and that's great. But I think sometimes what gets lost is that it can be really scary. I mean, and especially to have an experience that you don't necessarily understand that's something abstract and, and perhaps happens in outer space and there's crystals and a rock and stuff. It's like, that, that's certainly grounds to be a little frightened, a little worried. And I think it's only natural to, to fear death. Uh, a part of us will probably always fear death. I know it's very common for people who have NDEs to, one of the... <laughs> common after effects is that they say, oh, I lost my fear of death, but it's, it's perfectly natural to still be afraid of, of that process. I, I, I don't fault Melanie in the slightest for that. I think we all probably have a part of us that does indeed fear death. And even if that's just the loss of the body or, or some kind of finite form, I think it's, it's totally natural. But all that being said, it sounds like Melanie's sense of fear and anxiety only gets worse after coming back from her experience, because a few days later, she starts seeing windows floating in the air in her kitchen. I'm going to read the paragraph here. A few days later, I then saw in my sitting room a massive, dark, paper-thin, mirror-like window floating in the air. I could only see it from certain angles, since it was flat and paper-thin. It then disappeared. A few days later, I was in my kitchen in the morning, and I saw about twenty much smaller windows all over the place. They just hang in the air. I was upset that I could see something so weird. Again, it made me worry the universe was preparing me for dying when I am not actually dying. Okay, so that is quite a strange thing to see and something that I did not really know what to make of when I first read it. The last part of that paragraph where she's saying she felt like the universe was preparing for her for death, well, that kind of makes sense to me. I mean, in this podcast, I have made frequent reference to a book called On Dreams and Death by Marie-Louise von Franz. All throughout that book, she has countless examples of certain dreams that people 
near death have had that have a certain sense of comfort or alternately uh, a certain sense of uh, this is what's coming. This is what you need to prepare for. Some dreams that are quite shocking, that are quite uh, not pleasant. Like uh, I remember one she mentioned was a, a man who was shown the decaying corpse of a horse like in a in a bank vault. Okay, that's it's not a very pleasant dream. But the implications of it are okay, your body is dying, the animal is dying, but you're still there. And so she documents all these different dreams that that seem to indicate that the psyche is preparing it, a person for death even if it's not necessarily going to happen next week or something but but that is it is a way for the psyche to comfort the person the ego into knowing that okay while it's coming perhaps it might not be the end and i think all of the imagery that we have explored thus far in melanie's experience has that similar tone that this imagery stretches across across the ages of, of time and in different places that all over that uh, these particular things that Melanie saw have a very deep meaning and significance, especially with what their implications are. The purple of royalty and divinity and ambiguity, the crystal of that tends to represent the soul or the uh, some higher deity, let's say, or a divine being. And then we have, you know, this rock floating in space and this vast circle of other beings, both, are, both of which are highly meaningful as well. And so while this is a very weird experience, I think that there can be something taken from it. And while the fear is very real, and I, like I said, I don't fault Melanie in the slightest for, for feeling this dread and anxiety around all of this crazy stuff that's happening. But at the same time, I feel like if we can dig deep enough into this imagery, we can find meaning that is buried in it that might give us a sense of hope rather than dread for all of us if we can see the same meaning within our own experience. And so what do we do when we come across something as strange as phantom-like windows floating in the kitchen or the sitting room? I, <laughs> I often have the experience of having read an NDE and reading a particular part of it and going, what the hell does that mean? Like, what could, what could be going on? And, and so I scratch my head and I, I think, okay, well, I'm going to have to find some way to research the imagery of windows or something of, of, okay, when can I find examples of windows in mythology or religious, particular religious ideas? And then something strange usually happens. Usually, uh, this has happened a few times, but I, I come across the exact thing that I'm looking for in whatever book that I'm reading at the moment. And in this case, just uh, it might have been the day after I had read Melanie's experience, and I was pondering, like, okay, these windows, that's so strange. What could that mean? I was reading this book on divination and synchronicity by, again, Marie-Louise von Franz, and I came across windows. She was talking about this uh, image of the window and how it was used in particular Chinese ideas and then also in certain West African ideas. And it was just, and also uh, medieval alchemical ideas as well. And so it, it was just an amazing little coincidence which has happened a couple times when I've 
been researching for uh, these episodes, but that always <laughs> kind of makes me shrug my shoulders. And uh, but I'm very grateful that I, I found something that might give us some insight into what this strange aspect of uh, Melanie's experience might mean. And it's kind of a strange thing because we don't tend to see a lot of after effects that are this, I don't know, dramatic in many NDEs. I mean, people tend to, like she said, feel quite connected, feel a sense of oneness, that sort of thing. But but these strange apparitions, it's pretty interesting. And so I found something which hopefully might be able to shed some light on it. And so I am going to be reading just a few passages from On Divination and Synchronicity to try and explore this image. And just to give us a little setup here so we're not lost as soon as uh, we jump in here, Von Franz is going to be talking about a particular image that is of two wheels that are sort of locked together, that form a cross. If you think of two wagon wheels that are crossed in the middle and where they meet is at their spokes and how they couldn't possibly turn just based on the physics of the whole thing. But she has this diagram of these two wheels and she's going to relate this to certain timekeeping methods of the Chinese. And it's very interesting and I'm really excited to to talk about this this weird uh, how, what role the window plays in all this. Quote: Since we have no other information available at the moment, we can only look at the products of the unconscious, namely the double mandalas, and see how they are connected. The interesting thing is that such double mandalas are usually represented as wheels two wheels, or two discs, but generally wheels, figure 16. If you were to cut that diagram out in cardboard and try to make such a thing, you would see that those wheels cannot rotate, but would destroy each other. In spite of it all, these double mandala models assume that one wheel is rotating and the other standing still, but if one wheel rotated, it would cut the other wheel apart and vice versa, and if both rotated, there would just be an explosion which would destroy everything. I mean that, mechanically, those two wheels cannot rotate. So all these symbolic references to the meeting of those two worlds seem to show that the world of time and the world of acausal orderedness outside time are two incompatible systems that cannot be put together but are complementary. They are, that is, more than complementary. They are incompatible, and we cannot imagine how they are linked to each other, which is probably also the reason why we cannot establish any law of synchronicity, for then the wheels would have to be coordinated in certain ways. The only place where the two systems link is at the hole in the center, which means that they link in a nowhere or in a hole. This mysterious hole between the two worlds is in a one-sided way also represented in the Chinese incense clock. The Chinese had very accurate clocks before they became acquainted with our clock systems, but on a completely different principle. They drew a mandala and labyrinth form into which they put a thread, such as one would use for a time bomb or some powder which has the same quality as the fuse of a time bomb, namely that it burns on and on for a certain time. This they lit and covered up, and it went on smoldering, and to find the time one just opened the lid and looked to see what point the fire had reached, and that was the time. They even invented alarm clocks in that way. To certain parts of this smoldering thread they attached a pebble, and put the clock above their heads when they went to sleep. And when the smoldering thread had reached this point, the pebble dropped on their heads and woke them. This is still used in China, for where they have no other clocks, they have these incense clocks, as they were called. 
and according to Joseph Needham, they are fairly accurate and completely satisfactory for practical life. Here, the interesting fact is that time in China is conceived of as a field in which a patterned energic process takes place, and accordingly they invented this device which works in the form of a clock. There too there is a hole where the smoke escapes and where the thread is inserted. Time, therefore, has a hole where man interferes, where man steps into the picture. There is no absolute time. It is the same with our clocks. Some have to be wound up, or now we have another technique by which our own movement winds them up. But if the watch is not used, if it is put on a desk and left, it will not go. So at the hole in time, in measured time, man steps in. That is only a little analogy on the technical level of a much deeper problem, namely this hole of eternity. In the Middle Ages, the anima, or matter as the anima, was also identified with the Virgin Mary, and there are many alchemical texts and also certain official ecclesiastical hymns in which the Virgin Mary is called, quote, the window of eternity, or, quote, the window of escape. According to our modern definition, the anima figure is, in a man, the bridge between the personal and the collective unconscious, and there also she carries the title of the window of escape, or the window of eternity. In Mysterium Conjunctionis, Jung at the end quotes extensively from the work of an alchemist, Gerhard Dorn, in whose philosophy the window of eternity, or the Spiraculum Eternitatis, also plays a great role. Spiraculum is an air hole through which eternity breathes into the temporal world. We see, therefore, that this meeting place, which is a vacuum, is an archetypal representation which in mythological and alchemical philosophy appears as the place where the personal realm of the psyche, including the personal unconscious, touches the collective unconscious. It is as though the collective unconscious were the eternal order, and the personal unconscious and the personal conscious would together be the time-bound order, their connection being through the whole. Jung interprets this spiraculum eternitatis, this air hole, or breathing hole into eternity, as the experience of the self. He says that through the experience of the self, we can escape and be freed from the grip of a one-sided image of the world. Now, reality is only real in so far as we are conscious of it. It is consciousness, therefore, which casts for us the image of the reality in which we move all the time, and that is a cage or a prison. The whole, which is the experience of the self, breaks that cage or prison of our conscious reality apart, and by that frees us from the grip of its one-sided concepts. This whole, therefore, seems to be like a pivot, the point at which two systems meet. The Chinese philosopher Mo Tsi has, to my mind, amplified what that means in practical psychological language. He says in the Doctrine of the Mean, quote, Only the man who is devoted to utmost sincerity can unfold his own nature completely, and through that he can also unfold the nature of his surroundings completely and thus can support the transforming and nourishing powers of heaven and earth. Only a man devoted to complete inner sincerity can know the future. This virtue is really a quality of nature, and thus, that means if a man can know the future and is possessed by the utmost sincerity, a union of the outer and inner can take place, and the ways of heaven and earth can be explained in one sentence. They are without any doubleness, and that is how they produce things in an unfathomable way. End quote. So heaven and earth, yin and yang, 
are united in China through such a hole, and they too meet in this innermost meeting point, where, quote, there is no doubleness. You see, in the central point of the diagram, figure 16, there is no doubleness. Everywhere else there is, but in this point there is oneness. This place of oneness is the point where heaven and earth unite, and also the place where creation takes place. From this whole comes creation. From this nowhere comes everything which is newly created. I want to remind you here that Jung defined synchronistic events as an act of creation. A synchronistic event is an a-causal event, and is therefore, one could say, an act of creation. Jung believed in a creatio continua, like certain modern physicists who believe that there is in the world in which we live a place where from time to time new things are created. The synchronistic event would be such an act of creation. That is naturally evident for the Chinese mind, because they think in only synchronistic terms, and creative acts, which are synchronistic events, come from this hole where heaven and earth meet. Then comes this beautiful Chinese idea that man can actually get in contact with that. He can get to the place where heaven and earth create in an unfathomable way, without doubleness, through utmost sincerity. If someone devoid of all illusions and all that makes the world of the ordinary ego goes into himself with utmost sincerity, then he comes to this central hole where creation, even in the cosmos, takes place. That is why the Chinese thought that certain sages or saints, very rare personalities, could reach that center, and by having come to this contained innermost center of their personality, could support heaven and earth, and be with creation and the universe. Now I'm going to skip ahead a few paragraphs and read about the West African deity called Fa, who is worshipped by a couple West African tribes such as the Mina, the Fawn, and the Yoruba. He doesn't have a broad cult or worship, but he is rather worshipped individually, so it appears. And this is just another interesting example of this particular image of the whole into eternity or the window of eternity. Quote, Fa has many titles. Like all great powers in African representations, he is not often called by his name. They circumscribe such powers by many names, which are sometimes a whole sentence or phrase, such as, quote, hard as stone. Other names are, quote, search and look, he who reveals what everybody has in his heart. Master of life. He who transmits the messages of death. Perhaps one of the most beautiful is, quote, The sun rises and the walls get red. And there the Bokono added this explanation, quote, You see, when you see the truth, everything becomes clear like the sunrise. End quote. And then ultimately, and that is interesting, quote, the whole which calls us into eternity. There again is the fenestra eternitatis, the window into eternity, which the Africans literally call fa, the whole which calls us into eternity. He knows the number of all those who are born. He knows the number of people who die. He holds, so to speak, everything but he is only friendly to man. This is an archetypal parallel to the medieval idea of the wisdom of God, representing the benevolent and truthful side of Yahweh. End quote. Okay. So there was a lot of information in that reading, a lot of material, ranging from medieval alchemical ideas to Chinese conceptions of time to... West African beliefs regarding a particular deity. But what I want to emphasize here is we can start with something that is very mundane and boring, such as a window, 
even though it appears in a somewhat strange and confusing way as an apparition in Melanie's story. But if we just scratch the surface a little bit and are able to uncover some some of the ideas that are surrounding the window, let's say, we can find incredibly deep meaning that is associated with it. So while Melanie was kind of confused and worried about this weird hallucination of, of a window and then multiple windows, there is something incredibly deep that is available if we are able to make sense of it, if we are able to make the connection. And really the first question that I suppose we should always ask is, well, what, what is a window? Well, a window is a portal which connects two different worlds, connects inside and outside, or vice versa, and allows you to see from one to the other. And that seems to be the meaning that we might be able to grasp from the reading I just did from von Franz. This idea of a hole into which uh, eternity can come into the temporal world. That there is a window that perhaps we can reach within us that allows us access or to see into something that is divine, eternal, beyond us. And that is deeply transformative. You might even say that each near-death experience is a sort of window into which we can get a small glimpse of something eternal or divine or sacred. And that's just an incredible idea that not only do we share our own experiences of, of full-blown spiritual NDEs, but perhaps even in our own dreams that we have these intimations of something that where, where time meets eternity, this point, uh, which, as von Franz says, that Jung described as an experience of the self or an experience of the totality of, of the psyche and all of the implications that come along with that of religion and spirituality and meaning, connection, going home. And I loved that little bit that von Franz described of the Chinese idea that perhaps through our own effort, our own work on ourselves, that if we are able to be of utmost sincerity and humbleness and, and be free of any illusions, we might be able to touch that point in our own lives to, to reach into that point where creation happens. And certainly, if any of you all are creative, it certainly feels like when you get that surge of creativity, that it's something divinely inspired, that it's coming from somewhere beyond you. I, that's the experience that I have when I'm really drawn into something, perhaps musically when I'm making, making a song or something, but yeah, for anything. Perhaps it's a sort of flow state that we can get into. And maybe that just takes sincerity and humbleness and work. But that's something that we can be a part of that the eternal can reach into time. And that's how you get things that are truly amazing. And so, really, I go through all this just to, just to try and put a fine point on the fact that the symbolism, although we might not understand it, is there. That there are things that we can take away from seemingly strange and weird sort of 
things that happen to us, whether it's a dream or an NDE. And I hope that that's of use, that that can provide some access to perhaps something within us, like all of these things might have personal meanings, but perhaps they have an element to them which is also collective or universal. So what does it mean if we see the color purple in a dream, or see a crystal, or see a window? Like, sure, there are things that you or I might have personally that we associate with those things, but perhaps there's something deeper that that goes goes into the realm of of mankind. And so I know this has been quite a long series on one near-death experience, and that's something that I might want to continue to do here as we go along, because it certainly has been very engaging for me, and it's been fascinating to really dive in at, at this great a depth. So I hope, like I said, that, that it's useful even just as a way to to get in touch with this mode of thinking, because it's not something that is, I think, very intuitive for us. I mean, we, we sort of get a sense of it, but but might not know how to find the meanings that might be there. And so just to summarize and in this series on Melanie's near-death experience, I found an amazing quote from the book I've been reading by Emma Jung about the Grail legend. And I thought it was perfect to summarize the particular images that we looked at over these past episodes. What was amazing about this passage to me was that it contained all the different elements that we talked about over these four parts of Melanie's experience. And so I want you to pay close attention because you will see the color purple. You will see the void or the window. You will see the crystal. And it's, it's just a very powerful summation of all of these ideas in action. And so I thought it would be perfect to close this series with this wonderful passage from Emma Jung. Quote, It is natural to suppose that things buried or hidden merely refer to something unconscious which only needs to be dug up or uncovered like a treasure raised to the light of day. This concept of an empty grave, however, seems to point further. It could be a question here of something so concealed and invisible that it is as if it had never existed at all, something which did not merely need to be uncovered, but which to some extent had to come into existence first. This then would be that other life referred to above, not the natural bound-to-nature life of the body, but the life of the inner man, transcending nature, that encompassing personality which Jung has called the self. In the dreams and fantasy pictures of modern man, this hidden, invisible something is occasionally depicted as a meaningful and numinous void. There is one picture in which an egg-shaped void, from which rays stream forth, forms the center of the world, or of a mandala with an empty center. The words of Meister Eckhart beautifully express what is meant by this image. Quote, Everything must be lost. The soul must exist in unhampered nothingness. End quote. Or, quote, Whosoever would come to God must come as nothing. End quote. Or, expressed in Eastern imagery, quote, In the purple hall of the city of jade dwells the God of utmost emptiness and life. End quote. The Confucians called it, quote, the center of the void. A nothingness, a void, 
is therefore the inescapable condition for the emergence of the self. The self is not already present from the beginning in a comprehensible form, but manifests itself only through the outer and inner realizations of a life lived to its end. For this reason, Jung has likened it to the crystal lattice, present as a potential form in a solution, but which first becomes visible in the process of crystallization, although crystallization does not necessarily take place. The self is therefore not complete, but is present in us as a potentiality which can become manifest only in the course of a specific process. End quote. Thank you all very much for listening. I've really enjoyed doing these past four episodes on Melanie's near-death experience, and many thanks to Melanie for wishing to share her story with us. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Join the Facebook page. We have episodes on Spotify and YouTube. And if you enjoy the podcast, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you use. If you want to check out my new side project called Voicemail Heartstrings, there is a link to the website in the description of this episode. Maybe turn an old voicemail from a friend or a family member into a song that you can hold on to forever. And so, yeah, I can't top the quote that I just ended the episode with from Emma Jung, perfectly capturing all the different aspects that we talked about. So I'm not going to end with the usual quote, but just going to say thank you very much for listening and hope you all stay healthy and safe and well. <laughs>